Welcome to Students and Scholars, a literary podcast accompanying the course English 2620, British Literature After 1800, at Utah Valley University. I'm Dr. Zan Kamek. Today we're joined by guest scholar Dr. Ellen Campbell, who discusses women's rights under marriage contract law in the 19th century, as well as the new woman figure in Dracula. Dr. Campbell received her doctorate from Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, where her dissertation discussed marriage in Victorian fiction as a trauma narrative. She is currently a lecturer at Auburn University and has a forthcoming chapter in the edited collection Me Too Modernism from Clemson University Press. As a content warning, this episode discusses themes related to domestic abuse and sexual assault. If these are triggers for you, please forego this episode and join us next week on our episode that discusses Victorian new media. And also, I'm offering you a giant virtual hug. Thank you, Ellen, for being on the podcast today. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) What drew you to discussing things like women's rights and marriage contract law in Victorian culture in the first place? What what kind of got you into this? Well, I I think that that they say often that we research things that we... um, find sort of like challenging in our own sort of world. And so I've always just been really interested in getting access to how sort of women felt and and thought about the sort of central experience of their life in the 19th century and something that's still very central, I think. Yeah. In order to actually even understand Victorian culture and a lot of the novels and literature that we access today, it requires that we kind of know what women did and did not have access to or did or did not have rights to. Um, otherwise, the whole social structure doesn't make sense to us, right? Right. And because that's really what novels were talking about then, um, you know, mm-hmm. by and large, it also, I think, is something that we have to, to be able to understand to even begin to think about the importance of the literature of the time. I mean, in this in this class that I'm teaching, we started with Jane Austen, and, and the marriage plot is so central to Austen. Um, and yet, you know, how, 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 the, how the characters get to that end point is actually more of the point of the novel than any kind of happily ever after. Yeah, and it's such a weighty decision, right? I'm actually teaching Pride and Prejudice right now. We're talking about this. And my students are sort of, you know, kind of wondering why this is, you know, such a, a big deal. And it's a, a choice, right, that women had to make, you know, often within weeks. And then what happened on the other side of that was they you know, didn't have much of their own identity left. And so it's just really interesting, I think, to to think about how the novel sort of reflects that as cultural work. Go ahead and talk to us a little bit about kind of what's happening in marriage contract law around this time period. So the the major sort of governing law at this time um, for women and marriage is this law of coverture, which is the, the basis of contract law for, for marriage. And it's the idea that, that once a woman enters the marriage contract. And once the marriage settlement is drawn, so whatever money she has for a dowry or whatever property she might have um, from whatever, you know, if, if she was a, a widow or if it's from her father, whoever it's from, um, becomes the husband. Her identity becomes the husband, right? This is sort of the root of changing our last names. Uh, and her person also becomes property. <laughs> So this transfer from father's name to husband's name is really kind of symbolic of this idea of women as a transference of, of property in in essence, right? 
Yes, exactly. That's the governing principle that's really leading up into the, the 1850s and 60s when, when there is some sort of uproar, right, from, from women and, um, and sympathizers like John Stuart Mill um, about mm-hmm. this condition that it's often used or described as um, using the metaphor using the metaphor of slavery um, as women are sort of enslaved by contract law um, and marriage because they sort of don't have many rights before that. And then they have even fewer after. Um, And so they're privy to a lot of potential right abuses by their uh, abuses of power by their, their husband. Not that that happened all of the time and that they're, of course they're, weren't all evil men in the Victorian era, but right. But that's but that again it goes to what we were talking about earlier as to why the courtship novel is so big is because that's the only time as a young woman you had really any power to make decisions about your life, and so you had to kind of like test whether this was um, a guy who was going to be someone you could trust, not just with your money but also with your physical body um, for the rest of your life, and so so it's not a small thing for for women to choose you know, crappy husbands like Mr. Collins in <laughs> Pride and Prejudice, but at least, you know, Charlotte is pretty sure Collins is going to leave her alone. Um, and so Wilkie Collins um, in uh, The Moonstone, the whole fact that Rachel Verinder isn't willing to even come near Franklin Blake um, after after she kind of perceives him as this very untrustworthy character, right? Right. And, and you know, in, in that novel, it also, the mystery sort of boils down to some property, right, that she has some very valuable property she has been given that has been sort of stolen. Mm-hmm. And so that, that metaphor absolutely runs through um, the Moonstone. So around the time that Wilkie Collins is writing, um, so like the you know, 1860s um, mm-hmm. is, is when a lot of the, the laws are being reformed and shifted um, to, at least on the surface, look like they're giving women a little bit more, um, a few more rights, right, Mm -hmm. inside, um, inside that contract that is going to protect them from, you know, things like, um, wife abuse or, um, things like using all of their money on, Mm -hmm. on gambling, right, to use an extreme example. And so in the, in 1868, which I believe is the, the year that the Moonstone came out, is also the year that, um, Collins is probably other equally famous text, The Woman in White, comes out, and it's being published the same year that the divorce court sort of publicly opens, which is one of the major shifts in um, the 1860s, where, and I misspoke, um, The Woman in White came out in 1859, and the divorce court opened in 1858, which is what I meant to say um, now, 1868, so need to, <laughs> to throw that in there, a decade does make a difference. Prior to 1868, the the divorce court, right, was uh, ecclesiastical only. So this basically meant that you could get a separation, but it wouldn't be like a legal divorce. And you could only get this if you had proof of, like, non-consummation of the marriage or proof of infidelity on the woman's part. Something like that was the only way you could get ecclesiastic endorsement. Yeah. The thing that's so interesting about this is that once it moved public that still sort of happened where the woman could not um, get divorced, right? The man mm-hmm. could for the mm-hmm. kinds of things that you're talking about, like um, for adultery, right? A husband could sue for divorce, but a woman couldn't if it happened on sort of the other side of things. Mm-hmm. And so the the thing that really um, is sort of the, the rub here is that the woman had to have another reason. Um, and so she actually... 
had to have a, adultery sort of plus something else. So adultery plus marital cruelty or bigamy or something of that nature. So mm-hmm. she almost had to have double the reason that the husband did. Actually, you know, in, in The Woman in White, um, there's a scene where, where the um, the girl who is abused um, suffers from physical bruises and the, the woman that is going to sort of um, bear witness to that says, like, I need to see them so that I can document this. And he also has later fiction where, like, he has prefaces to a later novel in 1870 called Man and Wife where he actually says, like, this novel is sort of meant to expose the inequalities of marriage law. And so it is something that he eventually is aware of. He often exposes what Austin won't. And that's, you know, what happens after when you do, you know, when you do make a a bad match or even before, right, in in, in the Moonstone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's at stake for that and and how how that can go so terribly, terribly wrong for women and how, how deeply unjust and unfair that balance is. Kind of, it's kind of funny that um, that a lot of your research focuses on all these like super duper unhappy marriage plots, because um, that's not to say that there weren't happy marriages in the Victorian era, but but you have to be aware of what the women, you know, what what kind of structures they were even able to have power within, because otherwise, it's easy to kind of be like, oh, she's married happily ever after, and it's like, eh, let's let's be a little bit more suspicious of that. Imagine jumping into a marriage nowadays and then not having the option of divorce and it becomes 10 times scarier to commit. Yeah, it really is. Um, and so when, when the divorce court opens in, in 1858, um, it finally makes allowance for physical cruelty. Um, but again, there has to be another reason. So it has to be that and adultery or that and bigamy or, or something else. Like mm-hmm. still at that time, um, a woman sort of suffering physical abuses is not enough for her to earn um, divorce. And also, like, mental, cruel, mental cruelty is not even remotely part of this conversation. Although, like, there are people in Parliament that do sort of raise that as a as a legitimate concern, but it's not written into the law at all. Um, yeah, because, I mean, psychology is still not even a firmly developed science at this point. It's not until very late... Uh, 19th, sorry, late 1890s. I mean, by the time we get into Dracula, we're finally starting to kind of get into Freudian theories of psychology. Um, so the idea of like psychological harm and emotional harm isn't something that the divorce courts would have had maybe even the right kind of vocabulary for. And I think they realized that it was real, but they just mm-hmm. weren't sure they could legally protect it. Um, and this also sort of gave way to a lot of of the kind of discussion about women sort of abusing the marital cruelty defense to get divorces when they weren't happy Um, Mm -hmm. because the numbers of women that brought tried to sue for divorce and cited marital cruelty was astronomical Mm. Um, and so it it gave way to this sort of belief that that couldn't have that that couldn't be really happening in that many homes which is which is terrifyingly close to some of the conversations we still have today about about women um, coming forward to cite abuses right Absolutely. Um, and it, it's definitely a culture right, that has not has not disappeared. Yeah, we've, we feel like we've come a long way and we have, but that these are things that we still carry the historical burden of and we haven't kind of dismantled them entirely. Yeah, exactly. And novelists at this time, so Collins, but then also to look forward to Dracula, are, are starting to sort of explore these um, 
biases or, or problems with sort of confronting these kinds of social issues up front. Um, you know, if you look at Mina in, in Dracula, she is, you know, what we would later call the new woman in some ways, but she's also the ideal, like, angel in the house, Victorian woman that mm-hmm. um, that takes care of everybody. But then she's also, like, let's be real, she does most of the work in that novel. Um, <laughs> 100% Mina is controlling what's going on there, and the men take a long time to figure out that she does know what's going on. But, but Stoker is not particularly, at least I don't tend to think about Stoker as being particularly like feminist in his complete treatment, right? Of Mina or especially Lucy. It's with Lucy that we have the troubles, right? Right. But the the other quick like law thing is that, you know, in the 1870s, so there were two property acts. Um, mm-hmm. There was a property act in 1870, right? Which did allow women to earn money on their own property and marriage. So that was progress that was mm-hmm. passed due to women's rights activists. So there are, like we keep talking sort of about these problems, but there are people fighting for this progress and it, it is slowly slowly coming i think you know we, we can say with some of these laws and there's a law in 1878 the Matrimonial causes act that does start to provide more legal protection for domestic abuse um and other various laws about infant custody because for most of a lot of the 19th century if a woman did get divorced she would her husband could decide whether or not she got to see their children which is the other thing that yeah. might be lacking for our so sort of own cultural perspective about who gets to keep the children <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and and part of the reason was is that the the man in the nineteenth century was the one who had money. the The woman had no guarantees of income, no guarantees of of property, and so the the financial upkeep for a child was was perhaps a burden on the woman, which is why it's such a big deal that in the seventies we start to see women being able to come into the workforce. Yeah, exactly, and that's something right that that is also sort of part of the the conversation um, that's happening, not just in fiction, but in newspapers and in um, discussions about sort of what this new role, right, for, for women should look like. Queen, like Queen Victoria is one of the most sort of powerful people in England at this time. She is the most powerful woman in England at this time. And so that sort of is something else that is like lying behind all of this as well. But isn't it true that like Victoria, Queen Victoria was actually like, not a really big proponent of women's rights. She was kind of um, anti-feminist in a lot of ways, which is surprising coming from, like you said, the most powerful woman in England. But she's kind of yeah, like, she Come absolutely on, did, and she, she. Uh, I mean, England is is it or Great Britain rather is you know having its sort of golden age, right? When she's queen, like they. I think um, sort of have colonized two thirds of the Western Hemisphere <laughs> during the time that she's, um, you know, all of those other things that are also problematic. So I, I think that she she sort of works to maintain sort of that privilege in an interesting way too. <laughs> it's exactly as you said, you know, the fact that she can be a figure that people can say, like, look, women in power is not a bad thing, and yet that exact figure is the one who's saying, like, yeah, ladies, let's just you know simmer down. It's a very um, weird moment for clashing perspectives. Right. And, and so she's sort of this this also very stable figure um, in terms of their lives. But as you move towards sort of the end of the 19th century, when you move towards, you know, when, when Stoker's novel comes out and even a few years before, is when sort of the, the turmoil for women's rights and, and marriage rights and, you know, questioning whether or not marriage is even like remotely useful for women 
um, when those kinds of questions can actually start to be asked sort of in the wake of the, the decades before where, where incremental progress right, was, was starting to, to take place. Well, and you had shared with me this article, um, Is Marriage a Failure? as a popular article that actually ran and got a lot of responses. And that is ind- an indication of how you know, controversial this topic was. Exactly. And so that actual, the thing that I shared with you is an excerpt from um, a newspaper query from the, the Daily Telegraph that is in response to a, a piece of writing that came out in the, the Westminster Review by a woman named Mona Caird, who um, is a, I would, would say by their standards, an extreme feminist. Um, and it, you know, in that... She in that piece she likens marriage right to prostitution and also to vampirism, which is is interesting if you you know think about yeah. Dracula. Um, it's in response to that, and the Daily Telegraph asks this question, and they get over twenty thousand responses from just you know English citizens that are interested in having this conversation and having their perspective heard. You know, it's it's not just getting the message out, but the fact that there's that many responses is really significant. And the fact that, you know, they aren't able to publish even, you know, a quarter of the responses to to this kind of extreme position on, on women's rights tells you that this was um, like a flurry of culturally relevant kind of discussion. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is if you look at, at the sort of excerpts of those that, that I shared with you, um, the, mm-hmm. you can, it's always signed by like a widow or uh, a male correspondent that's soon to be married, signing himself a lover. And based on who is having the perspective, who's writing their perspective, you often can kind of make assumptions about what their perspective is going to be. So the man who signed it, a lover, right, mm-hmm. writes that, you know, no woman should advocate for free love, which brings infinitely more misery, shame, and disgrace to women than it does to men. And so like, you know, that kind of thing where you, ha- you might have a widow that who's been married and, and suffered through this would say something, you know, the complete opposite, like absolutely marriage is a failure. Mm-hmm. Was a spinster who's never been married and her, she still sort of romanticizes marriage as something that is good for society. So it is really interesting mm-hmm. in thinking about self-interest, you know, too, in, at this time. Well, and that we have to define marriage in different ways too. You know, it's it's is it a contract? Is it an institution? Is it a day to day? Those aren't things that we can kind of take for given definitions from everybody's same perspective. So the fact that you know, for instance, in the wedding vows, women were asked to obey the husbands, but that wasn't in the vows for the husband. Um, those are the sorts of kind of inequalities that we're having within these conversations that make marriage as an institution something that's that's less stable there's there's a lot of um it's it's more fraught than the way that we kind of think about equal partnerships in in marriage today and i think that stoker and and collins are are kind of playing with that in their in their novels in some really interesting ways just to kind of think about dracula and wilkie and wilkie collins as though they're writing um in a sort of sensational or supernatural sort of genre that even allows them to, to tackle these topics a little bit more openly than than other yeah. novels which is another sort of like layer to to think about in terms of the various kinds of media that are discussing this issue whether it's a newspaper query um, where anonymous responses are happening or whether it's a a novel that has is considered sort of less respectable than a real than a, a realist novel would be or so it, that's mm-hmm. also kind of all part of the the confusion and the complication behind all of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and it's and it's interesting, you know, it wasn't necessarily an intention of mine when I chose the text for this course, but to have Northanger Abbey and the Moonstone and Dracula, I mean, all three of those are sensational mm-hmm. um, in terms of their embracing the Gothic as a way to analyze their culture, um, or or this or the sensation at least, this idea of how are we going to tell the story? What's the novelty of the story? How are we going to frame that? Um, which enables them to explore things that are maybe a little bit um, more taboo. You know, you mentioned obviously with Stoker, he's, he's addressing vampires, you know, you're, you're talking about vampires. And so, you know, we can, we can talk about anything because now it's all just, you know, a, a mind experiment rather than dealing with, with real life. And yet Mina is perhaps one of the most realistic depictions mm-hmm. of, of, you know, kind of a working intellectual new woman. Um, and she does some really interesting groundwork for what, what's possible for women as a counterposition to Lucy, who is just purely a sexualized figure. Yeah. You know, Amina compiles you know, most of the data in that and she, but then she also is sort of a tool, right. For them to, to get into Dracula's head, you know, later in the novel with the hypnotism stuff. Mm-hmm. And so she really like kind of waffles, I think back and forth in an in interesting way. Um, but, but her intelligence, right. It is always acknowledged, but, she still isn't allowed to be part of the conversation all of the time. And it's always, and it's always to the vampire hunters detriment when they shut her out. Yes. Like, um, even, yeah. Even, even though I think Stoker is still kind of working some stuff out. <laughs> it's complicated too, because Jonathan is like a complete, I well, I don't know how to <laughs> say that. Respectfully, <laughs> but like, he's kind of, he just is, is useless. Right. And he actually like, there, there's some weird gender reversal stuff that happens with some passages about him too. And like her taking care of him when, when he is sick in the convent, right. Versus yes. the other. And there's also, of course, the, the scene at the, in Dracula's castle with the three, um, the three vampire women mm-hmm. that is scandalous. I think even like every time I read it, I'm like, this is still a little bit scandalous. Yeah. And um, when you, and you know they're of course a kind of counterpart to to Lucy and sort of the the monstrosity that sexuality in women is, but because that is set in Transylvania and outside of England, like that's another reason I think why he's able to explore that with mm-hmm. with them yeah. um, that openly. Yeah, and so it's really hard I think to to figure out where where Stoker's novel is is landing on the the woman question and the new woman question. It's like he wants to take, or the novel wants to take pieces of the new woman and leave others. Yeah. You know, yeah. Away. I, think, I think that's, I think that's a really accurate way to, to deal with it because um, we do have, like you said, those, those three vampire women who are so overtly sexual and Jonathan is so overtly sexually excited by them. Um that it, but also horrified, right? Yes, like, yes. But like, how dare they be very, very sexually open? And it, and it, and it freaks him out. And that's what eventually like helps him at least get away from the women there. Lying behind all of that is like he like is really excited by them. Mm-hmm. But then like it's like that's the other sort of problem. I think the text sort of highlights is that they can't men cannot even consider women having like having sexuality. Yeah, really. Yeah. And so, and so like, you know, even when, when we get in the early parts of Dracula, where we get Mina talking about how excited she is to be Jonathan's wife, it's always in terms of like, I know all of the railway maps. I know how to do shorthand. Um, I'm going to be such a help to my husband. And she's framing it like, I'm going to be the best secretary ever to my husband. And it's like, you know, that's, 
Um, not why I got married. You know, I didn't get married to get to be someone's secretary. Um, but she's always framed in this kind of light of of not having sexual desires. She's per- using certain new woman qualities to perform like her role as like ideal Victorian sort of woman to like a, a better degree. Well, and let's and let's quickly let's quickly just define new woman. Yeah, um, it's a concept that that we're using a lot here, and it becomes more popular in like the eighteen eighties. Um, through up until we get to kind of more of the suffragists, but but how do you define the new woman? And this is like capital N, capital W, new woman. So I always think about the new woman as sort of this figure right that rises that is starting to sort of demand autonomy both socially and and sexually. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I keep saying like Mina is like half of the new woman. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and sort of the, the anxiety right, that's caused by like her desire to sort of reject traditional roles. Um, and so that's why I, I think about her and I sort of imagine her in like a, an outfit, right? There's a, a cartoon um, and I don't remember exactly where it's from, but there's sort of a woman in like riding boots and half of a dress and pantaloons. And like, that's sort of like the, <laughs> the idea, right? Of, of what she, she yeah. really looks like. Yeah, because I mean, I, I've, I've read some work that kind of define Lucy and Mina as two halves of the new woman coin that t- together they make a new woman. Yeah, but but that they're separated out. So Lucy kind of represents this sexually liberated woman, a woman who isn't afraid to take control of her own body, whereas Mina is very clearly, um, you know, and she's a typist. She has the shorthand like she's got all of these things that are actually very socially acceptable working woman uh-huh. attribute at the time. Um, it was actually around this time that like stenographers or like people who would take down dictation and work on typewriters is like, that is a very socially acceptable and booming um, workplace environment for women at this point. And so she's, she's ticking all of these boxes of, yes, she can be the working woman version of new woman. And Lucy is the sexual version of the new woman and if we could mash them together then we would have a socially um defined new woman but stoker is like not okay with actually smushing them together he he wants to keep those things separate right it's almost like her her being married to jonathan is like the means to that she's able to access his information and then gives her that power sort of to to do that subversive action of putting together the novel um and so it's almost like the the, her self-development and her sort of self-development as a new woman, sort of working woman, um, is is weirdly tied to her marriage in a way that I think a lot of Victorian, a lot of people at the time, like imagine those two things being kind of separate. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I do think you're absolutely right that the fact that she's married throughout the majority of the novel, I mean, she starts out the novel as Mina Murray, right. so single woman, engaged woman ends the novel as Mina Harker, married woman. But it's only after she gets married to Jonathan that she really starts to be able to kind of come into her own powers. And, um, you know, so that's why she's able to have all of these like conversations with, um, there's the whole scene where Jonathan Seward allows her to listen to his phonographs. Mm-hmm. And they're they're alone the whole evening, this, this married woman and this man, which would be like social ruin for a woman who is not married. Yeah. Um, so there's there's all these extra little like perks and liberties that she's allowed as a married woman. So I guess this is really just to say that that Stoker isn't quite sure how to handle 
the new woman character, but Mina is his most complex iteration of it. Um, and I think that Dracula as a novel actually handles this better than a lot of the fiction even published shortly after in the early, early 20th century, because nobody knows what to do with a, a new woman character mm-hmm. in a novel. Like that's, that's the other sort of part of the, the problem is that like they're, what do you do with a woman besides have her get married or, or have her die, which is what happens in a lot of early 20th century. <laughs> yeah, tech. true. Other options for Stoker really are, are limited, I think, in terms of like what, what his imagination, what, what the novel sort of would allow him to do as a form. Yeah. So again, Lucy has to die um, and Mina has to marry because what else are you going to do with women who have autonomy over their bodies or autonomy over their own money and, and work? Yeah, it's just how their how their world makes sense to them, and I think that the the incremental like legal changes that we you know started off talking about, and then sort of the way that the novel or novelists right and um, other sort of nonfiction pieces of writing right try to combat that incrementally really um, really complicates that like for the Victorians and, and really challenges their identity in a way that can be difficult to I think make sense of, but it also helps us, I think, understand that these, like, changes, even legal changes, right, don't always change the cultural sort of mindset, and it takes a really long time for that to happen. And that, and that leads actually beautifully into kind of my final question for you, um, Ellen, and that, and that is, how do you see these conversations that we're having here in terms of gender law um, and, and the way that that's relevant in Stoker, how do you see these things as being still very relevant outside of a, of a survey course on British literature? I mean, like the, the sort of obvious place I think for us to go right now is, you know, the recent rise of the, the Me Too movement, um, the way that we sort of debate that. And um, I think actually like is something that if we look, even at you know, it's a, obviously a transatlantic transnational discussion if we look mm-hmm. at the conversations that we're having, um, whether it's on social media, whether it's in films or in books about, you know, believability for women, about why they, you know, why, why are they, why women have a hard time sort of um, opening up about this. And even we're more and more open about it, of course, but I think we, we still struggle with that. And so I think we can, we can think back to the Victorians a little bit and thinking about why we, we struggle with that. Yeah, that, that, that their narratives are ones that we have perhaps inherited and that we still need to be pushing against. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about why we, you know, even retell some of those stories. So I think that's one sort of interesting way that, that our cultural sort of work still still engages with the ideas and uses them to help us make sense of our world. Well, excellent. Thank you so much, Ellen, for being here today. It was my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Dr. Ellen Campbell for joining us on this episode. I look forward to discussing these topics and more with you in class. Join us next week for another student-led podcast in which we discuss Victorian new media and Dracula.